come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. This is what we believe. You can be seated. How much does your life weigh? Imagine for a second that you're carrying a backpack. I want you to feel the straps on your shoulders. You feel them? I want you to pack it with all the stuff that you have in your life. You start with the little things, the things on shelves and the drawers and the knickknacks, the collectibles. Feel the weight as that adds up. You start adding larger stuff, your clothes, tabletop appliances, lamps, linens, your TV. Backpack should be getting pretty heavy now. You go bigger. Your couch, your bed, your kitchen table. You stuff it all in there. Your car, get it in there. Your home, whether it's a studio apartment or a two-bedroom house, I want you to stuff it all into that backpack. Now try to walk. It's kind of hard, isn't it? This is what we do to ourselves on a daily basis. We weigh ourselves down until we can't even move. And make no mistake, moving is living. Now, I'm going to set that backpack on fire. What do you want to take out of it? Photos? Photos are for people who can't remember. Drink some ginkgo and let the photos burn. In fact, let everything burn and imagine waking up tomorrow with nothing. It's kind of exhilarating, isn't it? Now, this is going to be a little difficult, so stay with me. You have a new backpack. Only this time, I want you to fill it with people. You start with casual acquaintances, friends of friends, folks around the office. And then you move into the people that you trust with your most intimate secrets. Your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, your brothers, your sisters, your parents. And finally, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. You get them into that backpack. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to light it on fire. <laughs> Feel the weight of that bag. Make no mistake, your relationships are the heaviest components in your life. You feel the straps cutting into your shoulders. All those negotiations and arguments and secrets and compromises. You don't need to carry all that weight. Why don't you set that bag down? Some animals were meant to carry each other, to live symbiotically for a lifetime. Star-crossed lovers, monogamous swans. We are not those animals. The slower we move, the faster we die. We are not swans. We're sharks. Uh, that, was, that was a clip from the 2009 movie Up in the Air. Uh, George Clooney plays a guy named uh, Ryan Bingham, who's a motivational speaker. And his whole theory in, throughout this movie and the whole way he lives his life is he believes that life should be completely unencumbered, which includes relationships. Now, I'll give you a, a warning uh, ahead of time. This is not a family movie. 
so don't, um, <laughs> don't think that it is. Also, it's not a feel-good movie. It's a very dark movie. But the story's really powerful, and he actually learns, kind of, uh, learns that he has a longing for some relationships in a way that maybe he didn't before. But I wonder, as we look at this, I wonder if a lot of us, when we think about relationships, if we are subtly and maybe in a less extreme form, if we're actually influenced by a theory like that when it comes to our relationships. Now, the first part of that clip, for some of us, sounds pretty good, right? It's like, okay, uh, we can be held down by materialism, and we have too many kind of things that weigh us down in our lives. We need to shed those. We could even kind of put a Christian spin on it and say, we give it all up for the sake of the gospel, right? It would be awesome. But when we get into the point where he starts talking about relationships, and he starts talking about how the relationships are the things that weigh us down, I believe that there is something that's pretty contrary to the gospel story that's going on there. But I think it's in the tapes in our brains a lot that we live with. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see here from the very beginning a God who creates, right? Who, who creates things, but he creates out of his freedom and out of his love. There's no there's nothing in God that there's kind of a neediness that he has to create, right? There's not an emptiness within the Godhead that says, oh, I got to create something to fill this void. No, God is completely free and he chooses. It's an active choice of the will to create. Now, this would have been really different for um, the people of the ancient Near East culture. In the ancient Near East, there was a belief that the gods and the world were the same thing. Okay, so they really were intertwined with each other. They were exactly the same. So the gods kind of needed each other and they needed creation. Um, often these gods were really violent. They were temperamental. And really the goal in the ancient Near East culture was to be able to appease the gods at all costs. Right? So that um, we need to do something in order to appease them. And also we need to make sure we don't do the things that will tick them off. Right? That was the idea. But the story of Genesis and the story of the Bible is very different than that. We see a God here who is not in need of creation, is not the same thing as creation, but a God who chooses to create out of his love. Um, there's a theologian who's um, named Colin Gunton, and he says this, it becomes possible to say that God does not need the world, and so is able to will the existence of something else simply for its own sake. Creation is the outcome of God's love indeed, but it is of his unconstrained love. God is not constrained. There's not kind of a need inside of him that he has to create, but he chooses to create because he's good. Now, there's an opposite view of that. You've got this view of the ancient Near East cultures where God, the gods and creation are one and the same thing. And then there's like an opposite view. And this is one that I think we're often informed by. And this view is influenced by a philosophy called deism. Okay, and deism would say, not that the gods and creation are one, but that God and creation are really, really far apart from each other. Okay? So God created, but then he distanced himself. Part of the idea is like a clockmaker, that God kind of wound up a clock and let it go and kind of backed off. And sometimes, maybe every once in a while, God will step into his creation, but ultimately he's unconcerned with his creation. Now, you might know there are some forms of Christianity that tend to lean in this direction. 
will talk about how big God is and how sovereign God is, which is true, is really true. But often there's an emphasis of a distance in God. But we serve a God who is constantly drawing close to his people, constantly drawing close to his creation. The deist God is not the God of the Bible either. Our God is deeply relational. He chooses to come close to his people. But it's not long in the biblical story before we see that this relationship act that God has taken in creation is a risk. Relationship is risky. And actually, early on, it looks like this plan that God has and this choice of relationship that he's made is actually backfiring, right? We see that human beings turn their back on their creator. So we see that Adam and Eve choose to go their own way, right? That Cain kills Abel. That ultimately, sin infects all of humanity and all of the world, right? But God does not give up on his people, That's what's amazing, is in spite of the rejection, he doesn't give up on them. In fact, God chooses a people, the children of Israel, and he uses the deepest, most relational language possible to speak of them. He said, you will be my people and I will be your God. In fact, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And God says to Moses, I have heard the cry of my people. Right? And he responds and he rescues them. We serve a God who is not content with being far away, but a God who hears the cry of his people and responds to it. Isn't that amazing? And then we see uh, in the book of Exodus, before uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments, this kind of um, this law or this um, kind of guide for the, the children of Israel, we see that some of the language that's used in the preceding chapters before the giving of the Ten Commandments is actually this deep relational language. And actually, many scholars believe that there's a Hebrew wedding ceremony going on between God and his people. That he's actually enacting the engagement and the betrothal and kind of walking through this language, using this deeply intimate language. This is a God who desires relationship and he desires to be close to his people even when they reject him. God is relationally engaged. He doesn't give up. Even when they go on their own path um, through creation, through the exodus, through the crossing of the Red Sea, when they're in the desert, he doesn't give up on them. When they find themselves in exile over and over again because of their sin, he doesn't give up on them. He's with us now and doesn't give up on us now, and he will not give up on us in the end. And then we see in the middle of history, something really beautiful happens. God takes the ultimate step of relationship. And this is something he chooses to do, again, not because of an emptiness or a need that he has, that he has to do it, but because of his love, he chooses to take on human flesh and come into our world in order to save us. This God always draws close, constantly draws close. John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love the message translation says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Love that, right? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This language here is deeply relational. 
God created the world. He, he marked people with his image. He chose a people. And yet now he comes into the world and those very people that bear his image and specifically the people who he chose to be his people don't receive him. And see this rejection here. But he says all who do receive him. For those who believe in his name, you can be the children of God. Now, if I was God at this point, I probably would have given up on people. Actually, I would have given up a long time ago. But right, so you see, okay, so I created you, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, I've been faithful to you all the way through. Now I'm stepping into your world and you're still rejecting me. But our God doesn't give up and he continues to pursue relationship. In fact, we see all throughout the gospels that Jesus is calling a community around himself. So he doesn't give up on people. In fact, he actually gets this community of people together of misfits and outcasts and he entrusts them with the kingdom of God, (laughs) moving the kingdom of God forward. He hasn't given up on relationship. Luke twenty-two, fourteen. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, a lot of times we stop right there when we read and we introduce communion and we move into that. But this isn't the end of the story. Verse 21 But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So Jesus makes it clear here at this meal that he's sharing with them that someone at that table would betray him. Now, a Passover meal was a really big deal in this culture, is a really big deal in the Jewish culture. And so who you ate the Passover meal with was usually only your family. And if anybody else was to participate in the Passover meal with you, it would be somebody who was pretty much family. Okay, so these are really, really close people. So think for a second, who are the people in your life who are your family? Or if they're not related to you by blood, they're really, really close and they are family. These are the people that know your intimate secrets. They know who you are and they know you inside and out, right? Think about those people. Jesus is saying one of those people is going to betray him. Wow. This is the kind of the ultimate sign of betrayal here in the Judas story. There is risk in relationship. Relationship is risky. And if life is all about moving as fast as you can, if it's all about keeping your backpack as empty as possible, if it's just kind of about achieving the highest status that you can, if it's about being a shark who just moves as quickly as possible, then it doesn't seem like there's a place for relationship, is there? Right? That doesn't seem to make sense. What if somebody betrays me? Well, that'll hold me back. What if somebody's just awkward? (laughs) I don't want to be around them. I got to move. I got somewhere to go to, right? That might hold me back. But the challenge is that's not the choice that God makes. That's not the choice that Jesus made. Jesus chose to invest his life into 12 people. 
And he even, um, he even entrusted them with his deepest secret. If you read the Gospel of Mark, it's really interesting, especially the Gospel of Mark. Um, you see over and over again in these stories, some of the 12 disciples, they kind of figure out that there's something to Jesus that's pretty transcendent, that he's the Messiah or something like that. They'll be like, they'll tell him that, you're the Messiah, or they'll see him heal somebody. And then Jesus always responds with, don't tell anybody that. Right? Don't tell anybody that. And you're kind of like, what is going on? And there are other gospels where it's done a little bit differently or whatever. But we definitely see that they were close enough that this deepest secret that Jesus had that he didn't want anybody else to know, he entrusted in the disciples. There was this strong relationship there. And actually, Jesus' life and ministry was really about relationship, right? It was about his relationship with his disciples, sure. But it was also about his relationship with the outsiders and the outcasts the tax collectors and the sinners. It was about his relationship to the Jewish and Roman authorities. In fact, when we look at the life of Jesus, sometimes our temptation is to think that what Jesus was really all about was just his teaching, okay? Or what Jesus was really all about was his healing or something else. But really, what is so significant, what we often miss, is that Jesus is a person who is drawn close and desires relationship. The thing that's important about Jesus is Jesus and who he is, right? Sometimes um, when we read the Gospels, I know I, I at least think, if Jesus just, just ditched these 12 guys, he could do so much more stuff. Because they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They're trying to call down fire from heaven. They have all these random debates about um, who's going to sit on the right or the left hand when you come into your kingdom. They're random, randomly chopping people's ears off. They're, they're just like doing this crazy stuff. Jesus, just move on and, and leave these guys behind. But for some reason or another, he believed in them and he chose relationship. That's the God that we serve. And I think that tells us something about our relationships. If God actually entrusted this kingdom of peace and healing in people, often people that messed up a lot, people that were messy, people that were outcasts, what should that tell us about each other, right? If God believes in us, we ought to believe in each other. Another big question, I think, is couldn't Jesus have avoided the, Jewish, the Judas thing, right? If, if Judas was going to betray him, and he probably knew that, um, you know, what, why couldn't he have just avoided it altogether? Um, that would be a really br a break in relationship, a real breach of trust there. Couldn't there be another way of kind of redemption? Um, and while we're at it, couldn't he have just avoided the cross <laughs> altogether? Wasn't there another way of redemption that could have possibly happened? Now, I know there's some speculation about Judas's role, and some people will speculate that maybe Judas was just following a script, and maybe it really wasn't a choice of his will, but somebody had to betray Jesus, so he kind of just followed that script. But whatever the case... Um, I think it's important for us to see that relationships are messy. They can be messy. Um, sometimes there's betrayal. Sometimes there's break in trust. But for some reason or another, God desires to still draw close to us. He chose the cross for us. He chose to take on humanity for us, not because he had to, but it was an act of his grace, an act of his freedom. Our God believes that we are worth the risk. And we ought to believe that for each other. Now, here's what I'm not saying. This is really important. Sometimes people have taken this idea that when um, God is rejected over and over again and he keeps going back and pursuing a relationship with his people, kind of twisted that um, 
to say that people should just go back to their abusers or to toxic relationships when that happens. And that is not what we're saying. There are toxic people, there are unsafe people in this world. And it is completely and totally appropriate to put boundaries on those relationships. To be able to say, I cannot spend time with this person. I cannot be around this person. There are some relationships that can only be healed through a significant amount of counseling. And there are some relationships that may not actually be healed before we see the new heavens and the new earth, right? And that's totally appropriate. But here's what we often do. Sometimes we have a bad experience and we've had a betrayal. Or we've gone through something in our past. or We've had just a weird experience with community and we cause that to paralyze us from ever leaning into anybody else. We cause that to hold us back. But God didn't give up on the idea of community and on relationships. Now, some of us, it's because of a betrayal. It's because of a really deep kind of broken thing. Some of us, it's more superficial than that. Some of us just want to avoid awkwardness, right? I don't want to go to a person's house that I don't know. I don't want to go biking with somebody I don't know. That's just weird or awkward. I don't want to have a conversation, right? All these things kind of happen. Trust me, I'm the king of awkward conversations, okay? Probably more than half the conversations I have have a good, healthy dose of awkwardness in them, right? That happens. Last night, I went to my 10-year high school reunion. That's awkward, okay? You don't have to clap for that. It's just 10 years. It's not that big a deal. But, the, uh, but it was awkward. It's kind of strange. But you push through the awkwardness because you believe that relationship is important and relationship is significant. Now, the disciples believed that they had, well, they knew awkwardness firsthand. Jesus called this guy named Matthew, who is a tax collector. And he's just sitting there one day, and he's doing his tax collector thing, and, and Jesus calls him, and he goes, right? Um, tax collectors had a really bad reputation at this time, and they were seen as kind of really um, kind of scummy kind of people. And then um, there's another guy that Jesus calls, and his name's Simon, and he's a zealot. He's po- part of this political party called the Zealots. Now, zealots spent a lot of their time sitting around and plotting and planning ways to kill people like tax collectors. Okay? Awkward. So you get these two together kind of in a meeting, and I'm just kind of picturing the conversation. Matthew's like, hey, Simon, how's it going? And he's like, remember that time you tried to kill me? That's awkward. That's strange. Right? And you've got all these diverse groups of people from all different backgrounds, and yet somehow this kind of ragtag motley crew of people are supposed to carry forward this kingdom. It's amazing. Yeah. Also, uh, we live in a time right now, we live in a political season right now, don't we? And there's rhetoric that's really, really high, and, and we have a very diverse community. And we're blessed with that. We have a very diverse community as far as political backgrounds. I know that because I'm Facebook friends with you. Okay? <laughs> but we have to be careful. Like, What happens when I bump into somebody who I know is going to vote differently than me? Right? Or I, am I still willing to lean in towards them? Am I still willing to pursue relationship with them? even if it's awkward, even if it's strange. Now, sometimes uh, we think, and I've worked with small groups long enough to know that sometimes we think that if an initial encounter with something is awkward, that it must not be of God. But actually, I don't think that's true. I think, in fact, sometimes if something is awkward, that might mean that it is of God because he might be messing with you a little bit. He might be trying to mess with you and trying to point you towards a deeper level of community. No matter what we encounter with each other, awkward or not, let's recognize and let's believe that God believes that these people are worth the risk, and so should we. 1 John 3.16, 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We could almost say this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ took the risk and laid down his life for his image bearers. And we ought to take the risk and lay down our life for one another. It's a guy named Dallas Willard who's an author. And you should read everything he's ever written. He is just awesome. But... He wrote a book called Renovation of the Heart, and he describes this community that Jesus is forming and really what this community of light looks like. He says this, they are completely non-condemning, while at the same time they will not participate in evil. They pay it only the attention absolutely required in any social setting, and beyond that, patient and joyful non-participation is the rule. They know how to really be there wherever there is, without sharing in evil as was true of Jesus himself. Of course, as with him, others may disapprove of their being there, and there are always some occasions where one should just step away. But they do not reject or distance themselves from the people who may be involved in such situations. We talked at the beginning about the belief in the ancient Near East culture that God and creation were one. In this scenario, God, the gods did not make a choice, but they were kind of enmeshed with the creation. We have a God who chose, not because of a need in himself, but out of his freedom, he chose us. We also talked about the deist God who creates the world, but then is really, really far away and kind of looks from a distance and is never engaged or involved. And we said that our God is a God who constantly draws close. As we look at the God of the scriptures, how do we, what do our relationships look like if we're trying to reflect that love? How are we a people who are choosing community and relationship? And this is where it gets tricky. Sometimes when we choose community, when we say, hey, I want to get involved with more people in the community of faith or in the church, sometimes our motivations out of our own need, well, I need friends or I really need to be around people or whatever. Sometimes that's natural. Sometimes that's going to be the first step. But ultimately, we should make the choice to lean in towards community, not out of our own need, but because we want to lay down our life for somebody else, for their sake alone, right? And then also, if we believe that God is a God who always draws close, in what ways are we drawing close to people? Even people who are different than us, even awkward people and strange people, right? How are we drawing close to them? Our hope and our prayer is that we would love as he loved. That we would be willing in our lives to take the risk of community. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are so thankful that you have drawn close to us. That you pursue relationship with us. That you're not a God who's distant and far away, content um, to just look at us from a distance. But Lord, you draw close and have drawn close to us. Lord, at the same time, we're thankful that this choice to draw close was a choice out of your freedom and out of your grace. That it's not just something you had to do, but it's something you chose to do because of your love. Lord, may we be a people who choose love, who choose community, who act in grace. And may we be a people who constantly draw close to each other. We trust you, Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's all stand together.
said already, we have the opportunity to kind of in a really practical way kind of lean in towards community. We've got a bunch of groups out there. Just want to encourage you to take a look at those groups. You don't have to sign up for them today. If you don't feel like you, you want to sign up for one, there's some brochures with all the leaders' contact information. You can contact them, but want to encourage you to check it out and, and let's try to lean into each other more intentionally uh, here this week. Let's uh, lift our voices and sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As we go today, um, as always, if you need prayer for anything, our prayer team will be over here at the cross. If this idea of a God who draws close, a God who's relational, is new to you, if that's a concept that seems strange to you, familiar with the God that's far away, but, but what about the God who's close? I'd love to talk with you and kind of begin the conversation about what the next steps of your journey might look like. As always, we want to remind you of God's blessing for your life. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you safe in his arms. May he make his beautiful face shine on you. May he be gracious to you. May you know that he has chosen you by his grace. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace, a peace that passes all of your understanding. May it guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. Go in peace today. Fishing the